Welcome to The Dirt, where we discuss all things related to the environment and environmental justice, often with a focus on North Carolina. There are some fantastic conversations lined up for today, and we are broadcasting here in the studio of historic WSHA in downtown Raleigh on the campus of Shaw University. I'm joined in the studio today by your Upper News Riverkeeper, Matthew Starr. Hello. Welcome back, Matthew. Hey, thanks for having me. So we have to start today with Scott Pruitt. Uh, he is the head of the now ironically named Environmental Protection Agency. Uh, his spending habits and uh, his possible ethics violations are the subject of uh, like a 10 or more uh, different investigations. He's facing dozens of calls for resignation, and he is at every turn, it seems like, uh, doing something to make it easier, easier for industry to pollute our waters, our airs, our climate. And as of Monday, yesterday, uh, Scott Pruitt announced that the practice of clear-cutting forests to burn for fuel is going to be considered, quote, carbon neutral by the EPA. Now, let me be clear. Burning wood (laughs) emits carbon dioxide. Okay, and it's pretty ridiculous. Yeah, and cutting down forests decimates a very, in fact, our only effective way of removing the carbon already in the atmosphere. And cutting and processing these wood pellets has huge health and environmental justice implications. We'll get to that in a minute. Um, Chris Mooney and Dino Grandoni reported on this announcement in the Washington Post yesterday. Uh, they said. The contention that burning wood for energy is carbon is carbon neutral, they write, rests on the idea that trees remove carbon from the air as they grow. Therefore, while burning trees releases carbon dioxide emissions, carbon will be pulled out again if the trees grow back, which suggests that burning trees or wood chips can be considered a renewable or sustainable energy source, which is a complete sham. However, they write, uh, while carbon dioxide emissions from the burning of wood go into the air immediately, trees take decades or more to grow back. So if anything happens to interfere with their growth, such as changes made by forest owners based on economics or other factors, the emissions might not actually be removed from the air again. Yeah. Yeah. Of of course they won't be. In, in In the forests that grow back are not going to be the old forest ecosystems, old growth forest ecosystems mm-hmm. that they're that they're clear cutting. They're going to be monocultures. They're basically crop fields of pines, probably. It's just going to be, yep. you know. So you're destroying wildlife. You're destroying this habitat. And, you know, what's more prudent is catering to the desires of corporations like Inviva, uh, which is a wood pellet company uh, harming low-wealth communities and communities of color in North Carolina and across the entire South. Uh, while industry is destroying forest land across the South. Um, so as, as it happens, researchers from Dogwood Alliance and Tufts University released a report earlier this month on the environmental justice impacts of burning so-called biomass, which is what they call this. And I, I spoke with Emily Zucchino. She's the community network manager at Dogwood Alliance. A little bit about this. Um, we're going to play what she said. Here's what she said. So, Emily, thank you for joining us today. I want to start off with kind of a, a basic question. What is biomass? Because uh, that's a very, very vague term. And I don't think it really gives anyone an idea of what's actually what it is, what's happening. Um, 
when you're burning it to create fuel. So tell us about what biomass really is. Right, sure. So biomass is it's a broad term that refers to any organic material that's used to create energy. Um, and it's kind of a, a tricky term because you hear bio, and so a lot of people think it's, it's you know automatically environmentally friendly. But for any large-scale production of energy, when people are using the term biomass, they're going to be talking about the use of wood and more specifically trees for creating energy. And it's my understanding that these, and it's like wood pellets, they create these wood pellets. That's generally what's taking place and then burning them. That's right. So in the past few years, the, the southern U.S. has really exploded um, as a spot for the creation of these wood pellets, this woody biomass that's burned in European power stations. Um, and North Carolina has really been ground zero for the expansion of this industry. Uh, we currently have three large-scale production facilities in North Carolina, and a a fourth is on the way. And what happens is um, trees are cut down, they're taken to these production facilities, all the water is sucked out of them, they're turned into these little wood pellets, they're then transported to a port, and they're shipped across the ocean to Europe, where they are burned in former um, coal, coal incineration units to be um, burn for energy. Right. And I've read that, uh, you know, Denmark, the United Kingdom in particular, drags power over there is a huge importer of wood pellets, uh, biomass from the Southern United States. They've had channel four has had some reports recently, um, some investigations that they've done into that and in the clear cutting that has taken place in North Carolina and elsewhere across the South to get this stuff produced. I'm wondering, so tell us a little bit about how environmentally friendly this stuff really is. That's right. So um, you mentioned the UK, and they are the, the largest importer of wood pellets in the European Union. And Drax, the, the industry that you mentioned, is um, the, the utility in the UK that is burning these wood pellets. And they have time and again received subsidies from the EU based on um, the argument that burning wood pellets is environmentally friendly. Well, this has been proven time again to be false. Uh, The burning of wood pellets actually at the point of combustion is releasing more carbon into the atmosphere than coal. But the argument goes that um, as the trees grow back, they will absorb the carbon and therefore um, they are being subsidized for this industry that they are falsely claiming is carbon neutral. Now, the, the wood that's actually being sourced to be burned in Drax's power stations is produced by a company called Inviva. And Inviva is the number one producer of wood pellets in the world. And I, I mentioned earlier, there's uh, four facilities in North Carolina, and these are all owned by Inviva. Um, so those four facilities, one is not yet online. Um, they have three currently operating and one under construction. Those will have a total estimated annual capacity of um, a little over 2 million tons per year, which comes to nearly 50,000 acres of southern forests that are being cut down each year just to feed just to feed the production of those four facilities, and that's just here in North Carolina. So what we've seen with this industry is a huge increase in logging rates and a huge increase in logging of natural and hardwood forests which then run the risk of being converted to monoculture pine plantations, which are about 90 to 99% less biodiverse than a natural forest. Wow. 
and, and it's having an impact on the communities where these plants are located as well. Um, Dogwood and, and a partnership with Tufts University did a recent report that, you know, illustrated the environmental justice implications of these wood pellet facilities. And one of those communities is Dobbins Heights in Richmond County, North Carolina. Tell me a little bit about them and and their fight against Inviva. That's right. So um, what that report found was that overall across the South, wood pellet facilities are 50% more likely to be located in, in environmental justice designated communities and in North Carolina, um, it's even more more startling. Actually, all four of the North Carolina counties where Inviva has built or is building a wood pellet facility, these are all designated environmental justice communities, meaning that at least 22% of the population is living under the poverty line, and there's high populations of communities of color in those counties. And Dobbins Heights is no different. Um, so this is the newest facility by... In Vivets in Richmond County, North Carolina, down on the, the South Carolina border. And this community, that many of them were not even aware that this facility was was coming in. Um, and when they, they found out, instead of looking back at the information that had been shared, there were um, many areas where, where both Enviva and the, the state of North Carolina really missed the mark on giving this community um, full information about the plant that was coming in. The public notice that went out did not have an ad address. Um, they just listed the highway that the facility was going to be on, so many people were unaware of exactly where this facility was going to be located. And then once that was brought to the attention of DEQ and that was corrected, um, there was actually a, a wrong address listed. It had the wrong zip code. So there were several instances where, where this community just didn't even know that this plant was coming in. And this is something we've seen happen in other communities where Inviva is as well. There's no public comment period. Local citizens aren't given all the information or given an opportunity to ask questions or express their concerns. And we see some place like Richmond County that already has um, a great deal of polluting industries and um, a very close radius, about a six-mile radius to Dobbins Heights, which is where this new Inviva plant will be located. Um, those residents already live with a, a Duke Power plant. There's a CSX um, railroad terminal that has um, many toxins, as I understand. There's chicken facilities. So there's a great deal of industries in this area that are already contributing to emissions and pollution in, in the local area. And now you see Inviva come in. In Sampson County, North Carolina, residents tested the air quality before and after Inviva began operation and found a 75% increase in small particulate matter in the air after Inviva began operation. And this has been linked to things like cancer, respiratory disease, heart disease. So we see something like this plant coming in where residents already have high levels of asthma, high levels of illness, and it's it's just a huge concern for the for the health and well-being of that local community. And you know that really what you describe in terms of the community having a chance to provide input and the the ways in which they were uh, either kind of diverted from this it strikes me because Inviva has a history. It seems as though with not being quite 
uh, friendly with the truth in in other ways. Uh, they appear to bill their uh, their energy sources as um, kind of a clean, you know, climate friendly kind of a thing, and that's not true. It's they've been repeatedly deceptive with regard to the replacement woodland. You know, in the way that you described, the destroying. It sounds like they're destroying, you know, longstanding uh, forests. And if you read some of their stuff, it makes it seem as though they're just replacing it when, in fact, you know, they're putting up these monocultures, like you said. So, doesn't seem to be a particularly honest actor overall. Would you agree with that? Well, in Viva, what I've seen in Viva do is do very misleading terms. Um, so they say things like, we only use um, toxin limbs, or we use wood that, you know, isn't, isn't being used by other industries. And so, um, you know, we have in Viva using, using these kind of talking points, but what that really means when they talk about using waste wood is often that they're coming in for trees that have not traditionally been used by the traditional timber industry. So um, older trees that are maybe crooked or or rotten, um, which are really important for habitat and for biodiversity. So, you know, we see in Viva using um, these kind of misleading terms that make their industry sound really positive. But in fact, what they're doing is sourcing from um, whole trees. They're using about uh, 58% of their total product comes from hardwood forests, about 81% comes from, from sanding forests. So using terms like wastewood and tops and limbs is really misleading in what is actually happening on the ground. So it seems as though the wood pellet industry is at the moment is growing. Uh, what can people do here or in the European Union or, or at the very local level in the South to prevent these facilities either from coming into their communities or um, to kind of raise awareness about what's going on with this industry? Yeah, so there's there's a number of ways to get involved and take action. Um, Dogwood Alliance is, is working with... Um, you know, organizations all across the South with communities and people all across the South to really raise awareness about the um, the realities of this industry and the impacts of this industry on the ground. And we're really looking to our leaders and our elected officials to make some changes with what's happening to our forest. And Viva has been, allow- been allowed to expand completely unchecked in North Carolina. Um, there have been no studies done to really assess what the impacts of this industry are on the ground in terms of impacts on our, our forests, impacts on the health of communities, impacts on the climate. And and so what we're asking right now is we're calling on, on Governor Cooper to, to do a couple of things. Um, we, we would like the governor to initiate a, a study to assess the cumulative impact of the industrial scale wood pellet industry on forests, the climate, and communities. And until this is done, we're asking for no new wood pellet facilities in North Carolina, a cap on the expansion of existing wood pellet facilities, and full compliance of existing facilities with state and federal air quality standards, where we've seen a lot of lax um, by Inviva and, and by the state to really make sure that these wood pellet facilities are, are complying with the, the highest standards. Um, 
And we're also asking the governor to establish a commission on, on climate action that includes a focus on forests and resiliency. So um, folks who are residents of North Carolina or across the South can really join in calling on their leaders and elected officials to um, to do something to really curb the expansion of this industry and to get to get a better sense of the impacts that the industrial scale wood pellet industry is really having on our forests, on our climate, and on our communities. That is fantastic. Uh, thank you so much for shining a light on this and for the work that you at Dogwood Alliance are, are doing on this issue. I appreciate you taking the time to be here, Emily. Great. Thanks, Brian. Have a good one. You too. And that was Emily Zucchino at Dogwood Alliance. Everyone should definitely go check out Dogwood Alliance, their website. They've been out front on this issue in particular, in addition to others uh, for uh, years at this point. So they're a fantastic resource if you want to learn more about this. And, and I'll just touch on a couple of things that, um, you know, we didn't get time to, to dive into everything in, the, in that short amount of time. But it's it's not just the burning of the pellets uh, that's the problem here, especially for the communities around where these facilities are located. There are other impacts from just the way that it's produced. Uh, I mean, Matthew, you yeah. can talk about a couple of them. One, one of them is the fact that these 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 facilities burn biomass or sometimes coal on site. Yeah, I, I mean, it's it's just to try to paint the picture that this is an environmentally friendly source of energy is just bizarre. I mean, you have to, you have to, you have to move these pellets somewhere too, right? Oh yeah. So they're, you know, you're, they're trucked in, they're trucked out, they're shipped across the Atlantic to Great Britain. And none of the fuel that's used in that is considered in the equation that they've come up with that say that these are carbon neutral. So it's just, it's just, it's it's ab- it's absurd. It's a farce. It's a sham. This whole thing is a complete sham, and it's it's a transparent one. The fact that Scott Pruitt and anyone uh, in charge of regulating polluters in this country would buy into it is just patently ridiculous. So, anyways, check it out. It's a great topic. We are headed to a break. Stay tuned for the next segment. We are going to be talking to a civil rights attorney about a really really cool thing that she's doing and some attacks on civil rights in the state of North Carolina. You're listening to The Dirt on WSHAFM. Welcome back. Uh, I've got Upper News Riverkeeper Matthew Starr in the studio still with us, in case you're just joining us. And we are about to uh, get into a conversation about civil rights and the intersection between civil rights and the law and environmental justice. Uh, Once upon a time... There was an institution at the University of North Carolina School of Law called the UNC Center for Civil Rights, and it was formed in 2001, uh, and it was dedicated to serving disenfranchised, underserved communities who had were disenfranchised and, and fighting different kinds of fights. One of them was a, there was a big environmental justice component to it. Some listeners might remember uh, Elsie Herring, who appeared on our show um, a while back, and she talked about her experiences living next to an industrial hog farm. And there are a lot of communities who have suffered from the waste and, and other impacts of living next to these industrial hog farms. Well, when they 
were in need of uh, legal assistance to fight back against the Port Council and the powers that be that were ignoring them, UNC's Center for Civil Rights uh, came to the rescue, and they and they were one of the um, entities that tried to provide some representation and advice and um, a voice to communities who were being ignored in this fashion. And it was the the center. I, I use the past tense because the center does not exist anymore. Uh, well, it's I'm sorry, it does exist. There is an arm of it that does not exist anymore, and that is the arm in which they help people uh, with litigation and that kind of advocacy. It's it's largely relegated to a research um, aspect now, and and this is as of September of last year, when after a prolonged attack by the UNC Board of Governors, uh, this the the. The center was defanged, and two of its attorneys were terminated, and their names are Mark Dorison and Elizabeth Haddix. They have since gone on to uh, found a new nonprofit legal center called the Julius Chambers Center for Civil Rights. It was kind of born from the ashes of uh, this work that they had been doing at the UNC School of Law. And I spoke with Elizabeth about the work that they're doing now and about that transition and the attacks that the Board of Governors and and the Port Council as well um, levied on the center and what they're hoping to do in the future and what they're hoping to achieve. So here's a little bit of what she had to say. Joining us today, the Julius Chambers Center that you're they're currently the co-director of is, is, according to your website, it's a nonprofit dedicated to providing low-wealth North Carolina communities with sound legal representation in their efforts to dismantle structural racism. And the center is, as I understand it, kind of a continuation of work that you and co-director Mark Dorison began at the UNC School of Law's Center for Civil Rights. So I want to talk first about uh, what your mission at the Chamber Center is and, and how it relates to your work and the center's work at the Center for Civil Rights uh, briefly. And then and then I'd like to talk a little bit about why it is you're no longer at the Center for Civil Rights at UNC Law. So <laughs> for, first, what, you know, what, what are you working on um, just in general and, and, and what were you working on at the center? What is your mission with the, the Chambers Center? Sure. Um, well, the, you know, the mission hasn't changed since we left UNC. Um, we we uh, began under the leadership of Julius Chambers back in 2007 when Mark joined the center. Um, of course, Julius was there since the center's founding in 2001 as the director. And when we came on, Mark, in 2008 and me in 2010, there already was this very um, focused mission of training the, the next generation of civil rights lawyers. So we took students from UNC and actually from Central Law as well um, to, you know, train them how to represent low wealth communities that were, you know, resisting structural institutional racism. And I can talk a little bit more about that later. But um, the other part of the mission was to assist those communities and to do it in a way that we referred to as community lawyering, which um, Julius 
trained us in, that's, you know, learning the priorities of community and following them at all times. And, and then the other mission was to um, do really focused and innovative research. We, we called it advocacy-driven research that grew directly out of our advocacy in these communities and with these communities. And so I guess the only part we're not doing now is the research, just because we don't have capacity to. We, um, as, as I'm sure you know, we, um, in 2013, the Board of Governors began to, um, it became clear that, the, that there were elements on the Board of Governors who did not like the work we were doing. Um, I mean, we took that as, a compliment, given the the ideology demonstrated by these members of the Board of Governors who um, don't believe in uh, civil rights and uh, have seem to have some even some animosity towards civil rights, um, we found that based on some public records that we got uh, after our terminations in November, it showed that they really had been thinking about targeting the Center for, for some time, and not just the Center for Civil Rights, but um, other, uh, you know, public interest, you know, um, progressive uh, research and work going on at the U- at, at, at several different UNC campuses, including the Chapel Hill campus. Yeah, and I, sh- I should say and that so- the, the, the Board of Governors is a body that kind of governs some of the priorities in the UNC school system, and it, it's comprised of people that are elected by the legislature, uh, the North Carolina General Assembly, as I understand it. So um, for those familiar with that body, that might, you know, provide some context for, you know, why um, ideologically they might have had, a, I guess, a uh, problem with civil rights and um, and this kind of work, including some litigation activity, right, uh, which is specifically what they were going after uh, with y'all. I'm, I'm interested in, uh, in the intersection between uh, the industrial hog uh, industry and what you were doing and, and how that played into or may have influenced the Board of Governors um, attacks on on the Center for Civil Rights, if you can talk about that. Right, sure. So um, in 2013, in 2000, let's see, I guess it was 2014, we actually um, filed on behalf of the North Carolina Environmental Justice Network, um, the Waterkeeper Alliance, and REACH, which is the Rural Empowerment Association for Community Help, which is based out in Warsaw, North Carolina, and Duplin County, um, we, uh, they filed a Title VI complaint with the EPA against uh, our state regulatory agency. At that time, it was DENER, now it's DEQ, Department of Environmental Quality, alleging that the swine permitting program oversight of that permit and the general permit itself has a discriminatory impact on uh, African-American, Native American, and Latino North Carolinians in that it allows these operations to have these adverse effects, uh, which are disproportionately borne by those people of color in North Carolina. So North Carolina, you're, you're about two times as likely 
to live within three miles of a swine uh, CAFO, a confined animal feeding operation, uh, as a white person. And the impacts from those facilities because of the way they store the waste, which I'm sure most of your listeners know about by this time, but uh, we can talk more about that if they don't, uh, is, you know, it just has a horrible stench and draws all sorts of flies and buzzards and disease vectors. Um, you know, it just there, there's documented uh, health impacts from these operations. And there's, uh, of course, impacts on the environment as well and the runoff from these lagoons and spray fields. Um, it gets into our surface waters and then into our groundwater. Um, so the Waterkeeper Alliance has been tracking that for a long time, and the North Carolina Environmental Justice Network has been tracking the health impacts for a long time and have been trying to get the state to do something about it, and all of those efforts failed, and so they filed a Title VI complaint and have a, a range of other legal uh, strategies that they are bringing to uh, bring some accountability to this industry and to the state that is charged with protecting us from the impacts of it. Now that uh, did uh, apparently anger some folks in the legislature and um, certainly the North Carolina and National Pork Council tried to get involved in that Title VI complaint back in 2016 and um, we uh, resisted that on behalf of these our clients who did not want the pork councils to be involved in influencing DEQ any more than it already had, uh, but certainly not in the negotiation process around the Title VI complaint, which we were in a negotiation process in 2014. I'm sorry, 2016. So um, we know, uh, you know, it's 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 public information that the board of, board of governors member Steve Long solicited the Port Council's uh, support of his uh, proposed resolution to ban our ability to represent clients. Um, he got the Port Council's CEO Andy Curlis to chime in with the board of governors on supporting his resolution. Interestingly, uh, Andy. Andy's letter to the Board of Governors doesn't explicitly support the resolution. Uh, it's, a, it's an interesting letter. Yeah, it's publicly available, but um, but we know that there's been such resistance against any kind of uh, measures to improve the swine waste system in the state, make it less, uh, you know, impact adversely impactful to neighbors around these facilities, there's been such resistance from the industry that um, it was no surprise that we would come under attack like this. It's interesting, you know, we've got a, a law review um, article being published at, in Central's Law Review this spring that goes through the similar attacks on environmental justice efforts at University of Maryland School of Law um, and also Tulane School of Law down in New Orleans uh, in Louisiana. Um, very similar legislative intervention, political, ideologically driven uh, suppression of law clinics doing similar kinds of work. So it's, it's not a new, it's, it's, they sort of have a playbook on this. Yeah, I was going to say, do you think that's a kind of a coordinated effort or, or do you think that it's folks just kind of following 
following the playbook, you know, seeing what, what worked in, in North Carolina and other places and trying to do the same thing. Um, so, yeah, I, I don't know how court, I mean, I know that the attack on the center came from a coordinated place. Um, and the attack on UNC's progressive, uh, experiential education and, and just, you know, educational content that is coordinated that, that we have evidence of that. And that's detailed in our law review article. It's a national, uh, a national, um, playbook, if you will, from the ideological uh, right that, um, you know, there's no doubt in my mind about that. Whether the the environmental justice in particular issues and, you know, I think that's, that's just, that's just corporations trying to get as much as they can um, in terms of externalizing their costs onto communities that are they perceive as being unable to fight back and not all corporations do that, but, but some do. And they, um, they have to be held to account because, uh, you know, the costs are great and these communities are under-resourced and unable to defend themselves. And, and that's why the work of the center is so critical and the work of the UNC center for civil rights was so critical and, and having it, um, you know, eliminated the advocacy work eliminated at UNC was a horrible thing that happened in our state that I'm not sure folks understand yet, but surely they will. Yeah, I agree. And, and, and hopefully they will. Um, I know that you've got to go. Uh, so just real quickly, y'all are now set up, um, as an independent nonprofit at the Julius Chambers Center. What, what's the future, uh, look like for y'all? Do you think that you'll kind of remain in this space? Or are you going to affiliate with another university down the line? Uh, what does it look like for you? Well, um, you know, we, we have a board that is helping us answer those questions. We, we sort of took this year to, um, you know, of course, uh, do the cases that we've got. We have 14 matters that we took with us. Uh, our clients asked us to go, you know, take them with us when we left UNC. So we've got a lot of legal work that we've been busy with, but we've, we've also been busy, uh, you know, trying to, come, you know, put together a, a plan. And we, we know we want to continue the work. Mark and I are both very committed to that. How that work continues, though, is, is, is very much um, a question that we hope to have answered uh, this fall. We're working with a great board um, of, of leaders that some of whom have actually, you know, were our attorney fellows at the Center for Civil Rights and and certainly joining a, a university, a law school makes sense. I mean that's that that gets back to our research and, and training mission, which we've we're less able to do on our own out as a five oh one C three. but we're looking at some creative solutions and the one certainty is that we are going to continue the work that Julius uh, showed us how to do. So that that's not that 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 piece is certain. <laughs> how we do it is the question. But. Well, we will be watching closely, and uh, thank you so much for the for the work that you do. Um, not enough people 
dedicate themselves and their careers to uh, this kind of this kind of thing. And it's it's fantastic that you've remained resilient in the face of these um, big changes and attacks on on the UNC Center. So thank you for for that and for spending some time with us today, Elizabeth. I appreciate it. Oh, thanks, Brian. It's it's an honor to represent our clients. It really is, and it's a lot of fun, too. And working with um, folks like you is also a lot of fun. So thanks a lot for having us. Appreciate it. Take care. All right. Thank you again to Elizabeth for that. Uh, If you want to donate... Um, I believe you can donate to the Julius Chambers Center for Nonprofits. So uh, Center for Civil Rights, Google them, find it, and support them in any way that you can for sure. Uh, I want to switch quickly to talk about uh, the budget uh, for the Department of Environmental Quality. Just last week, Governor Roy Cooper made uh, a $14.5 million budget proposal to bolster uh, the state's regulatory environmental regulatory agency and the specific emphasis is going to be on uh, addressing the problem of gen x and emerging contaminants what else can you tell me about what he's what he's asking for Matthew? yeah so there's a large chunk that he would like well so of course this is the governor's proposal that he hopes the legislature will take into account <laughs> um which is you know at this point very not not likely to happen. However, it is a realistic proposal that they should take into account um, because other than just the very small amount of information we know about Gen X in Wilmington, there is a ton of information we do not know about emerging contaminants um, throughout our state. And what we do know is that DEQ, Department of Environmental Quality, has been cut drastically over the years. They don't have the staff. They don't have the budget. They they don't have what they need to do to protect our air and water. I want to say they've been cut something around 60% over the past 10 years. I mean, it's, it's, it's hugely drastic. And at the same time that the agency's budget has been cut, the state budget has actually been increased. So it's been this concerted effort to specifically target the ability of the state of North Carolina to rein yeah. in polluters in the state. Uh, it's its kind of ridiculous. And in, in that sense, I mean, uh, Governor Cooper, is, the ask is modest. Uh, they're a Republican-controlled mm-hmm. legislature in and Michigan. government in Michigan. Yeah, they just they just uh, asked for or got, I want to say, 20, 20, received yeah. 23 or over $23 million for their environmental regulatory agency. So this is a... a perfectly reasonable ask on the part of the governor to start, you know, putting staff back together to do testing and monitoring. And there's a humongous backlog of discharge permits that have to be dealt with because once a permit is expired, Mm -hmm. you know, these companies can just keep operating on it until it's, you know, fixed and amended. So staff, money, yeah. High-res mass spectrometers, all of the, yeah. the high-tech that we I mean, need to, to start addressing these emergencies. It's just unfortunate. It's, it's a reasonable ask going to an unreasonable man. Um, Phil Berger is sitting there in the Senate has... Uh, the Senate put... Yeah. Yeah, he's, he's... The proposal that the Senate put forward last time they got together was, was laughable. Um, and what's he saying about this one? He's saying that, the, that, of course, his plane is going to be the one that is going to truly fix this problem. 
Does yeah. his plan include fourteen and a half million dollars for DEQ? If his plan is uh, what was proposed in last session, then then he is wrong. Something tells me it's not going to be yeah. quite fourteen and a half million dollars for DEQ. It wouldn't surprise me if it was a negative number. <laughs> if, if if they could, they would. We've got to go to a break. This is the dirt on WSHA FM. Thanks for listening. Welcome back. I want to continue our conversation about the governor's budget request for the Department of Environmental Quality and specifically Gen X contamination, emerging contaminants. I had the pleasure over the weekend to attend the River Run Film Festival in Winston-Salem, North Carolina. And at the festival was a new documentary about DuPont chemical, uh, chemors, and a chemical called C8 that they produced that was the precursor to Gen X. And, you know, I'm not sure how widely available it's going to be for for the public to see beyond the film festival circuit, but uh, when it does get a distribution deal, everyone should go see it. We're going to hopefully organize some screenings. We'll see if that works out. What's the name of it again? Uh, It's called The Devil We Know. And it's a really fantastic illustration of the way that DuPont... Kim Orr's corporate America in particular manipulate the public, manipulate the legal system, and manipulate our elected leaders and lie and lie and lie about what they're doing to people and to the water. And it, it is a, just a fantastic story. There's a huge human uh, element to it. Uh, people born with defects and all kinds of uh, adverse health impacts because of the stuff that they're pouring into our water. And it touches a little bit on Gen X uh, towards the end of the film. And the fact is that there's a lot about Gen X we don't know in terms of its health impacts. The, the stuff we do know is really bad. And so this is, this is and we know that it's been put into our water in North Carolina for 30 years. And that's just Gen X. That's not 1,4-Dioxane. That's not any of these other fluorochemicals and compounds that are being poured into the water. This is an urgent, urgent issue. It may be the most urgent issue, environmental issue, public health issue in north carolina right we should now. be sam- the state should be out there sampling all the water it's the, every the, every major waterway especially every waterway that people are drawing drinking water into yeah. they that everything should be tested people should be tested uh the the treatment facility pipes should be tested sediment, sediment. should be tested and i mean and some parties are starting to do that but it's really piecemeal and it's the state's job they need the money to do it and the legislature needs to they shouldn't even be thinking about and this. And the governor's the fact that asking for seven million dollars to do that, which is probably again some some bare bones funding request. There, um, right now they just don't have the manpower, or the funding, and the legislature seems unwilling to support them. Well, and and to not just support them, but to support us and our health and make sure that our water is healthy. Well, speaking of the legislature, we're in the middle of a primary and election season, and I spoke with Dolly Burwell, who is uh, considered the mother of the environmental justice movement. Uh, She fought against the PCB landfill in Warren County back in 1978, 40 years ago this year. And we played part of the interview um, a couple of months ago. I've got another part I want to play for you right now because she talks a lot about political disenfranchisement, um, voting, and the power of voting to make change at the environmental level. Here's what she had to say. This fight that you uh, helped begin, and uh, it lasted over 25 years of struggling tooth and nail uh, to get this landfill eventually detoxified. How 
were you able and, and was the community able to keep momentum going and stay energized and stay engaged? I mean, I know for the first part of this, everyone was out there every single day, but it slows down and, you know, there's red tape you have to cut through and, and a lot of that stuff. How do you keep people fired up over the course of that, that long a period of time? Well, I, I think, I think, uh, I don't want to give the impression that people were fired up for 20 years because it, it, it really was not. I think circumstances, things happened that created um, uh, an ebb and flow in, in the movement. One, one, one thing that happened that I think that the reason the landfill was put in Warren County in the first place was political and as well as 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 racial um i think that i think the number one factor was the fact that it was a minority community and i think the number two factor was that there were there were no real strong political activism in 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 warren county but during that whole I would say from 1973 when Warren County was first designated as the site to place the uh, PCB landfill and at all the um, um, meetings and every every meeting we were really working to get people uh, registered to vote. And I think for the first time, people understood that the livelihood of their community and the destiny of the, that community was inextricably tied with with politics, that they had to become politically engaged and, and elect people that um, would listen to them and would have the community interest at heart. So... In 1982, we we spent from 1973 to 1982 really registering people to vote, to to um, educate people as to the importance of being politically engaged. And so, in 1982, for the first time, a representative government was elected in Warren County. Um, Congresswoman Clayton, who who former Congresswoman Clayton was elected to the county commissioner that year. Um, uh, African American sheriff was elected. Uh, 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 former Congressman Frank Balance was elected to the North Carolina House. In fact, I was looking at an article um, the other other day that um, I think the local newspaper wrote right during um, 1982. And it basically said, um, under the headline, Free at Last, because it was the first time that a representative government was elected from the school board, from the county commission and the school board to the sheriff, all the way down, and from the state house, because former Congressman Congressman Balance had ran before but could never. We only had one African-American on the um, county commissioner. His name was George Sherrod. And there were two other white 
men in the county named George Sherman, and, and I, I really do think that that was why Mr. Sherman was elected because people didn't thought he was one of the others. But connecting that 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 political uh, education to um, really turn out um, uh, to elect people, and then when the landfill. Um, we discovered that the landfill had ballooned up and that water had gathered and everything that the state had told us wasn't going to happen had happened in terms of the landfill. And so one of the issues was uh, to show you how the community was so educated. During the time that they were first trying to cite the landfill, members of the community were saying, take it to ML Alabama. They didn't realize that that was environmental injustice at that time. I mean, because they got educated around environmental racism and environmental injustice. So when the landfill ballooned up and we found out that over a million gallons of water had been trapped inside the landfill, the state was trying to pump the water out and take it somewhere else. And the community band together and said, no, this is not environmental justice. Uh, the governor had promised to detoxify the landfill once technology became available. We know now that technology is available. If you try to pump the water out and take it somewhere else, you're probably going to take it to another poor and minority community. We don't want that. We want this landfill cleaned up on site. So and 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 so don't try to remove the water and and the community really put themselves at risk because we didn't know if the water was going to get into the ground table but we knew it was not right to pump the contaminated water out of Warren County and put it in another um, poor minority community. And so the, the state uh, formed a, a, a working task force, and we made certain um, um, requirements that that the landfill working group had to be uh, controlled by the local community, and that when they um, pull together a RFP, that that the economic justice, that we use some local contractors and that the community have a representative on the, on the uh, state committee that was going to select uh, the um, cleanup um, company that was that will be responsible because we want to make sure that they were sensitive to the community. So a lot of things happen. Uh, I think that whole education piece around what environmental justice was uh, and and having been um, the people of color environmental justice group being formed and and community was educated, uh, you know, really gave us the fortitude to fight for detoxification on site. And I think everything was, you know, it was like almost like stair steps. You know, we we fought in in '82, and I think people felt good that that they had that a whole environmental justice community had been created out of that struggle. And I think the state, you know, felt that, you know, well, sure, if 500 
people were arrested in 82. Now that the people of uh, color environmental summit had had, had happened and, and our president um, Bill Clinton had signed the Environmental Justice Act, you know, that it was just so much more power. And so we were able to get the state. And then we also had um, Congressman, former Congressman Balance, who had got elected in 82 to the, to the House, was now in the Senate, that, um, that uh, Congresswoman Clayton, who was was then uh, chair of the county commission, was elected as county commissioner and went on to become chair of the Warren County Commissioner, was now in Congress. So we had so much more political clout and, and community clout. So I think everything sort of fell into place. And that's particularly relevant in 2018 as we look at the landscape in North Carolina across the country we see you know racist uh gerrymandering being done we see partisan gerrymandering being done disenfranchising disenfranchising and continuing to disenfranchise uh, voters that still have been uh, so those are particularly poignant um lessons to look back on and 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 I, and I think too that um you know one of the hardest things to do in social movement is to keep as Jesse Jackson said keep hope alive and I think for us in Warren County even though we have some ebbs and flow in the movement it was always a little uh, that next step that kept you hopeful you know it was it was it, it was electing a representative government that kept us hopeful that we were making progress um when when even having um president clinton to sign the environmental justice act and warren county knew that that was as a result of the movement that was started. It just didn't happen by osmosis. So to continue to build on what you had already done was a, was an important step. And I think even in 2018, uh, I think that people are beginning to um, be hopeful. I think Alabama certainly uh, made people hopeful that red districts don't always have to remain red, that gerrymandering is not a sign of giving up hope, even though we know it's wrong. We got to fight to change the gerrymandering, but we got to fight to overcome the gerrymandering, uh, even even when the, the gerrymandering districts are still there, we got to fight to make sure we turn out votes, even in those gerrymandering districts. Thank you. I'll I'll ask one last thing. Um, where do you where do you think the environmental justice justice movement uh, is today? Um, after these many decades, or is it headed in the right direction? Is it in a healthy place? Is it where where are we at? Well, I wouldn't say. I think it's the environmental justice movement is at one of those ebbs. Uh, I think from from a national perspective. But I do think that um, uh, last 
a week before last, I think, I attended um, a, a a conference um, at at Duke, and I saw how um, people uh, across the, it was a national conference, and I saw folks from Alabama that was talking about sanitation and water and 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 people from New Jersey, you know, and then I, I, I went to a round table on um, community networking and I saw the young people that was was in in policy um, uh, environmental policy classes. And so you, you and I and, and where I was it was very inspiring for me. So I think while you, while you don't hear about environmental justice uh, again, um, like Warren County in 1982, I think that you got communities still working to make change. And 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 I think that with a lot of the environmental policies being rolled back, it could really do. Uh, cause people to be not so hopeful. Uh, so I think those of us who who have the opportunity to encourage and to go to communities and speak, and, and those of us who who uh, at times were not so hopeful uh, in Warren County, it, it's part of our our role to try to keep people hope, hopeful and keep the you know keep keep the pressure on it and 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 show people how it gotta be the political and voting is all intertwined and even the rollback of environmental policy and environmental justice policies we got to connect that to what's happening at at the ballot box and and, and make changes all right. I think that's a great place to end it. Thank you so much for talking to us, Ms. Burwell. Thank you so much. Have a good one. And bye-bye. This has been The Dirt. Check out Upper News RK and The Dirt FM on Twitter for more info. Thanks for listening.